Good morning, Sojourn Oak Forest. As Dodd said earlier, uh, my name is Justin. Uh, my wife Carly, our two boys, Luke and Ephraim, are here with us this morning. And uh, we want you to know from the bottom of our hearts that we feel your love for us, your prayers and your support for us now more than ever as we prepare to move uh, into the UK and continue doing what the Lord has called us to, to equip and train and raise up church leaders and church planters in Europe. Let's pray really quickly. Jesus, I pray that you would set me aside and that you would speak, that your spirit would come, Lord Jesus, and that you would uh, show us what authority in the kingdom of heaven looks like. We ask this in your name, by the power of your name. Amen. In January of 2015, the president of the Republic of Italy, Giorgio Napolitano, resigned his presidency at the ripe old age of 96, declaring to the Italian government that he was ready to give it up, ready to retire. A month later, the Italian Senato convened to vote in a new president, Sergio Mattarella, a politician, a lawyer, a Sicilian, whose brother was killed by the mafia back in the 80s and 90s. The young age of 75 was elected Italy's new leader. And during this transition, we as a church, we were having a parish gathering much like your own, and we were talking about this transition and talking about what this new leadership meant for Italy. And as we, as we sat there talking, I told the group, I said, I, I don't understand how a country that laments and complains continuously about your bureaucracy and the slow Italian status quo, why do you continue electing people who have one foot in the grave? The room went silent. Everyone turned and looked at me. And one of the believers spoke up and he said, Justin, in your country, you may disrespect your president, but in this country, you do not. You do not speak about our authority that way. We're not allowed to talk about our president that way and to disrespect his age. I was floored, especially because We've heard of stereotypes of Italians, that they're willing to say whatever with no filter, even shouting at one another. So later that night, I went and looked up the country's etiquette on speaking about the president, and I found in their nation's legislation, and I quote, offending the honor or prestige of the president of Italy is a criminal offense under Article 278 of the Italian Criminal Code, and the penalty of that code is imprisonment for up to five years. In the last few years in this country, we have had two completely different presidents. And I'd be willing to bet that there are those of us in this room who have said something, whether in public or in private, that may not have been worthy of the office of either of these men at some point. See, I think that the story of Esther I think that our text this morning is speaking to us in the same way that my cultural gaffe in Italy does. It speaks into our desire for people in authority to have honor, but also that the office or the seat where that authority lies is shown respect. So let's go to our text. To understand the full weight of this passage, we need some background God's people, Mordecai, Esther, are finding themselves in the country of Persia, the empire of Persia. And they are called to live as exiles. They're called to live as sojourners in a foreign land. 
And the reason why this was, was not only the judgment that they incurred upon themselves, but that Yahweh had a plan through all of this. He had a plan and he was preparing the world for his coming new covenant. A covenant that would go beyond the expectations of a geographical place in Israel. A covenant that would span beyond their social or ethnic or temple system. And we see the nature of this covenant in the prophet Jeremiah when Yahweh speaks to his people. In Jeremiah chapter 29 verses 4 through 7. Specifically in verse 7 you all know very well. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For, it's in it, for in its welfare you will find yours. Sojourn Oak Forest, if you notice, the spirit of this verse, the spirit of what Yahweh is calling Israel to, is at the heart of what your values represent. Rootedness. Gratitude. Generosity. And hospitality all find their meaning in a verse like this. And so in the same way as Yahweh is calling you as a church to root down and to be a light to your neighborhood, he is calling Israel here to plant roots so deep that when his covenant would arrive by his spirit, poured out on Jerusalem after the resurrection of his son, as we see in the book of Acts, synagogues, Hundreds of them across the Greek world would already be set up, ready to spread the Evangelion, the good news of a new king and a new kingdom. And so this call of Yahweh to Israel was to uphold righteousness, to uphold honor as exiles, as sojourners among people who they might have considered dishonorable. At the end of chapter 2, the text that Pastor Drew spoke on last week, we see that Mordecai, from verses 19 through 23, Mordecai is giving a chance to save the king's life. He warns the king, the king is saved. Surely this is an ending scene that would see Mordecai rewarded. But as the last play finishes and the new play comes about, we don't see that. We don't see Mordecai rising in honor. The good guy isn't repaid his due. Look at the text with me in verses one and two. Instead, the narrator tells us that the man named Haman is given a throne. Haman is given authority. Haman is giving power. But this man, Haman, is not just any man. He is an Agagite. An Agagite would have been a direct descendant from the Amalekites, the same people who were supposed to be judged by Israel's sword. We see this in the book of Samuel. But because of King Saul's disobedience, that remnant now remains. And that remnant comes on the scene as Israel's archenemy. Now, I don't think that Haman here wants Mordecai to worship him. I think that Mordecai, as a government official, as one who is in authority, is being asked to pay respects and honor to a man in higher authority. This would have been common. Mordecai is at the king's gate. Mordecai represents the law of the land. And he's being asked by the king to pay his respects. But it's probably hard for us, right, to understand the injustice of this, especially as someone who's not an Israelite. How he would have been feeling at this time. But I want you to think about this. 
For him, it would have been the worst possible outcome, serving under his nation's enemy. And yet, because of Yahweh's calling, something quite possible, even for Mordecai the Benjamite. Why do we know this? Well, because God's people historically have always been called to that. We see that in Daniel, who paid respects to kings that he served under. We see that with the Hebrew Joseph, obediently bowing down to foreign authority, knowing that God places authority in those, in those positions, not just to protect his people, but he has a larger scope in mind. However, for Mordecai, this was unacceptable. And I think that there may be those of us here this morning living in the same struggle that Mordecai faced. And that's because right now in this day and time, our world and our culture in this moment in history has a really hard time with people in authority are not worthy of our honor. There are those in this country that took issue with the seat of our highest position of authority, seemingly held by an unbridled, proud, sexist bigot for four years. Others now take issue at that same seat being held by what seems to be an old and frail, mentally waning puppet. Some of us may not take issue with a person in authority. Perhaps we take issue with the type of authority that the government exercises. How have we felt? When we hear about mandated vaccines, how are our jobs impacted when there are economic restrictions? How are our families impacted when there are school closures? How are our budgets impacted when there are health super, supercharges? All in the name, all in the name by the government to save life. And yet with that same authority, laws are put into legislation across this country that prevent the unborn from living how do we respond when others in authority don't do the job we think they should maybe some of us have been let down by authority closer to home maybe it's not all political force maybe it's a friend a family member a mentor perhaps it's a parish leader or a church elder that has let us down Perhaps we can start to feel as Mordecai feels about injustice of it all. But how does he respond? And what are the implications of his response? If you look with me at verses 5 and 6, we see that Mordecai's response infuriates Haman. So much so that Haman seeks to destroy not just Mordecai, but all of the people of God. So just think with me for a moment. The, the actions of Mordecai almost get the people of God exterminated. Think with me just for a second about those types of consequences. I wonder what would have happened if he would have actually shown respect to the authority above him. And that question that I'm asking right now in no way takes away from the response, the horrid atrocious response by Haman that we see in the text. But in the same way, sojourners, how does our response to authority, how does it affect those around us? 
Because the spirit of our culture and the spirit of our world right now currently is, my thoughts are my own. Therefore, I can write, I can say, I can blog, I can post, whatever I'm thinking with no repercussion. When we witness injustice, the culture tempts us not to tolerate it, to cancel it, to not stand for it, to wipe it away. But when we do that, do we think of ourselves alone or do we think of how it affects others around us? And the reason why I say that is because instead of coming to exercise authority the way that Yahweh had instructed Israel, the way of Jeremiah 29, Mordecai's refusal to submit to authority can be interpreted as unfaithful rebellion against that which is lawful in God's kingdom, against that which is lawful in God's created order, even if God's way seemed unjust to an Israelite that had something against an Agagite. I think it's going to take God working the bad for good to save his people. And we see some of these echoes. Last week, Pastor Drew touched on how this garden story of Esther also echoes much of the first garden story. Where are those echoes today? Well, When things seem to go well with God's people, as we saw last week in chapter 2, just like in another garden story, a serpent enters the scene. The serpent today is the man Haman, as the enemy of God's people. If you look down the text with me, from verses 7 through 15 of chapter 3, we see that Haman deceives a king with an incomplete truth, and he bribes him just like In another garden story, we see that a couple is deceived who were meant to rule. In the same way, Adam, who represents all humanity, instead of listening to Yahweh in the beginning, instead of waiting on authority, waiting on maturation, he seizes authority with his wife Eve prematurely. The way they think is best, not God's way. But their decision... Their choice doesn't lead to physical death as we see here in the book of Esther. It leads to something much worse, our spiritual death. Our spiritual death. Look with me at the text in chapter 4. Look at how the people of God respond to the news of their imminent death. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out to the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. Verse 3. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. We see here, church family, the response of God's people in this text, just as we as God's people have always had from the beginning an edict of death that hangs over us with which we cannot deliver ourselves. And this is why. Mordecai failed to honor Haman, but we fail to honor the Lord. Mordecai failed to give glory and honor to Haman, for ethnic or tribal reasons, but our struggle goes much deeper. We desire our own honor and we desire our own glory. And I believe that that desire eclipses any other desire to give God what is his due. 
So because of our state, the scriptures tell us that we stand in need of a rescue. And that rescue has to be much larger than the rescue that's coming in the book of Esther that that we're going to be seeing, that we're going to be realizing as a church family these next few weeks. The rescue has to come and has to be much greater than the rescue of the bookends of this story. But thanks be to God. Church family, the scriptures tell us that our rescue came. That it came. But it came at a cost. A cost greater than the bribe that this king accepts from Haman. A cost greater than Judas's betrayal to another king, the true Israel, that faithful Passover night. This rescue that we see in the Gospels, we may never criticize, we may never call out, but only give it honor and glory forever. And this is why. It is a feat that no longer divides us, but it brings us together under God's one authoritative rule. And this is because in the history of humanity, there is no one who has been more grievously sinned against than the man Jesus. No person in the history of the cosmos has been worthy, has been more worthy of honor. And yet this person, Jesus, was shown dishonor more than anyone else. It's a paradox. It's truly a paradox. In the strangest way, the cross acts as the greatest scene and act of injustice. And yet it's the only way that we are brought to meet true justice. If anyone had a right to respond like Mordecai on that cross, it would have been Jesus. If anyone had the right to revile and to be bitter It would have been Jesus. And yet the apostle Peter tells us when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. In the same way, Jesus could have responded as Haman, as one in authority on the cross. But instead, he left vengeance to his father and he prayed for his enemies. The gospel Luke tells us, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. How does that sit with us this morning? That the Son of God doesn't call it out. Our culture tells us to get rid of injustice. And we have seen this in the last several years with really bad people really bad people in authority. We've seen it with people like the Me Too movement with Harvey Weinstein, violent police officers, abusive pastors. As a society, we're more geared towards social trauma, divided across racial and class lines. And we hear daily, if you do not act out against that injustice, you are part of it. You are snake-like if you do not cancel it. So much so that the very word injustice has morphed and transformed into something that just, whatever offends us is that. Whatever offends us can be deemed unjust. And yet if we look at the story of Esther Church, the book of Esther would say that injustice is necessary in God's plan for yours and for my transformation. 
we see that same view of injustice by Jesus. Imagine that moment with me for a second. Imagine that scene with me. Jesus on the cross looking down around the crowds, the dishonor, the shame. And yet he does not respond as the crowds want him to. He doesn't call out the injustice because he understands that God's way for our transformation to change the injustice in us would require him to show us, to model for us, how one submits to the kingdom of God. How one submits to the, nat- to the nature of God's authority on earth as it is in heaven. And so we see the narrative of redemption for us in the book. We see that God, who is seemingly absent at the cross, in the same way that he seems to be absent in this story of Esther, and perhaps how he seems to be absent in our very lives this morning. He is the same God that lays himself low as Mordecai, that cries out greater than Mordecai at his own inevitable death to come. And yet he is one who rises greater than Mordecai. He is the God and King, the son who through facing dishonor secures eternal honor through his bride, his queen. But how does that act of injustice, how does the way that Jesus transforms us, how does that transform the structures around us? How does the good news of the gospel actually bring about the justice that we all long and seek for? How does it transform our children, our marriages, our jobs, our politics? I think the way in which God gives this gift of justice to the nations is through the humble submission of his bride, namely the church, to his kingdom on earth. It's what we pray every day. So we pray every week here as a church family. May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. I think this is the spirit of what Yahweh wants. This is what he wants in this text to his people. And we see glimpses of it in the Old Testament. Isaiah 51.4, I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. Jeremiah 4.2, as the Lord lives in truth, in justice, and in righteousness, then nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him shall they glory. So what does this mean for Sojourn Oak Forest? What does this mean as we're coming already to a close of another year? It means that we spend the rest of this year with people. We eat dinner with them. We break bread with them. We talk on the phone with them. We listen to them who may not think like us. Who may not make decisions as we think they should. We may have to live with people or alongside people who have different views of what authority or justice or respects or respect looks like. But I believe we can do that, church, and this is the reason why. If we truly believe that King Jesus is reigning over our lives right now and that the peace of his gospel is transforming the world around us and we belong as citizens to his kingdom, we may not act so fast from a lens that goes straight to our individual freedoms. But think of others first 
And this is why in this kingdom, in the kingdom of God, in this church family, our thoughts are not our own. What we say, what we do, how we respond, how we spend our money, how we how we respond emotionally, how we live morally, it does affect the politic of this congregation. In that same spirit, listen to the Apostle Paul, who's writing to the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 24 through 26. But God so composed the body, that is the church, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Verse 26. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all Rejoice together. So what this means, church family, is that we might table our first thought to speak out. And perhaps we could reflect. We could encourage. We could reach out and pray for. And we could perhaps even bear one another's emotional rant. So that the people in our parishes and our neighborhoods see the justice of God in us. That they can see how that justice looks like. They can see the nature and the spirit of what that justice is. That they may see that the values and convictions that we hold to so dearly does not make up a church of one. But that unified as one body in the bounds of peace, we might be able to bring peace to this city through God's justice, not our own. When we think about this, I want us to think about what it means to be a part of a church that has covenant membership. Because this is truly where it gets hashed out. This is where we submit to God's authority in the church is through covenant membership. This is what it looks like for our individual families and our hearts. We bear with one another. We put up with one another. And hear what I'm saying right now. I'm not saying that we are called to live in just unquestioning obedience. I'm not saying we're called to overlook sin and not point out weakness. I'm not saying that we should just put the problem away and hide it so that we don't have to face it. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying, church, is that whatever we do, whatever we say, however we are with authority around us, with the people around us, that we show that authority, honor, and respect. So that's how we respond in the church. But what about outside the church? How do we respond to the leaders in our city? How do we respond to our senators and our congresspeople and our president? Listen to the words of Titus, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. The writer tells Titus, Remind the church to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. I think the reason why the writer is writing this way to this church group is that he believes that God is putting us in places all across the world to intercede on behalf of the political powers in this world. We are called to intercede on their behalf. We're called to ask God to bless them. We're called to thank God for them. 
we're called to pray that their hearts may be changed. And so this is what we do, church, every week. But we don't want it just to stop with on Sunday. We want it to be in your parish gatherings. We want it to be in your own dining room tables. We want there to be an intercession on behalf of God's authority in this world. We're called to pray for our mayor. We're called to pray for our city council. We're called to pray for our senators and Congress people and for those who serve us in Washington, even though we don't have the same fiscal convictions as they do. We're called to lift them up. And this is the reason why. We may disagree with a lot of what our ruling authority may believe, but they are our leaders in this nation. And when they look to us, the way that we respond and the way that we respect them, they are to see in us their best citizens. This is how the kingdom of God comes. This is how it transforms our cities. So as we close, I want to talk a little bit about faith if I can. And the reason why is that I I pray and I desire that we as a church family have confidence in the way that God's kingdom is expanding, in the way that it's transforming our neighborhoods, how it's transforming us. Because if we look back on the last 2,000 years of human history, what we have seen is something that remains constant, and that is this. Political powers change. Kings and princes come and go. But God remains. The church remains. The bride of Christ remains. Despite the persecution, despite the ages and the, the centuries where we get where things get easier or things get harder, we remain. We are called to live faithfully through it all. But what does that faith look like in the long term? What does that faith look like when things are slow and we are just caught up in the mundane of what society is doing? Many of us, when we think of the word faith, at least comes to my mind, faith is equated with being bold, with taking risk, with standing up and saying something, even though it could cost you your life. Maybe what Mordecai was thinking when he spoke up and said he wasn't going to to bow. But I think that Christ gives us another angle, another perspective on what faith looks like in his body. Look with me at the gospel of Matthew chapter 8, verses 7 through 10. You can read this when you get home. We know the story well. A centurion, a Roman, comes to Jesus, and he has a servant, and the servant needs healing. And Jesus says, fine, I'll come, and I'll heal him. But do we remember what Jesus says, or what the centurion says? He says, Lord, just speak the words, and my servant will be healed. Why does he say that? Why is he convinced that Jesus' authority works in that way? I think it's because as a soldier, he understands what authority and submission and obedience looks like. That is to say, if he believes that Jesus is the creator and the sustainer of the cosmos, that he has authority over everything, then that means he doesn't just have authority over bodies or sickness, but he has authority over words. That's why the centurion responds this way. And if you look, what's so strange is that Jesus responds and he says, this is the greatest faith. The greatest faith that I've seen in all of Israel. 
by just a man saying, speak it. I think the centurion believes that Christ in his authority in heaven and on earth, with that authority, his words cannot return void. He just merely speaks the word and his servant is healed. Sojourn Oak Forest, may we also have that same faith, a faith that just trusts in the authority of God's kingdom, expanding and transforming, an authority that is modeled with power and glory, not from what we say necessarily, but from the humble dining rooms of our home. Through the meal with our king every week, May we bring the peace of Christ. May we bring the peace of his gospel to those around us. We are called to do that. This is what covenant means. This is what it means to be a part of God's kingdom. May we submit to it with joy and peace. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for a glimpse of what faith looks like in your kingdom. Thank you that it looks quite simplistic and yet at times it is so hard for us to embrace a faith that completely trusts in you but we need that faith now Lord Jesus as we come to take your body and blood as we as we celebrate the sacraments that you've given us may we through that rejoice in what you have done and submit to that authority in our lives in our marriages and in our families so that your kingdom, Holy Father, may truly come as it is in heaven. As it is in heaven, it may be on earth. Pray this in your name. Amen.